gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 14. We are completing this chapter, reading verses 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes out against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you give us these ears to hear. Dig them out for us and incline us to understanding. And may faith spring up in us as we hear your word and may we respond to you. Help us speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. It seems that uh, we are battling the Jaguars today, I hear. (laughs) So thank you for not choosing the part of idolatry. We are continuing in our series in the parables. We find ourselves at the end of Luke 14 this week where Jesus gives two very short, concise parables that are related to following him. But during my years as a college student at Furman University, several friends and I adopted a tradition during the fall and the winter months. When we learned that a significant snowstorm was going to be taking place on the Blue Ridge Parkway, we would pack up our gear, load ourselves into a car, and drive to the parkway. It was just a traditional snow camp, is what we called it. It was really pretty silly, um, but it gave us something to do. And you know that certain traditions can really become bad masters because snow camping uh, really isn't that fun. Um, And no one would quite confess that it was just so miserable, but we survived through two record-breaking snowstorms, and uh, and it brought on a good deal of misery. Really convenient. There's no good reason to do it. But late one afternoon, my junior year, we heard that it was going to snow once again on the Blue Ridge Parkway. So we uh, left class. I'm sure it wasn't early. And uh, we loaded everything into my friend's Bronco, and we took the two-hour drive from Greenville, South Carolina, up to the parkway. Uh, We arrived in the dark, and the snow was already falling at a good clip, and it was cold. So I was tasked with setting up the tent. I unrolled it, set everything up, and was about to begin constructing the tent, and I couldn't figure out what was exactly wrong. I was looking around at all the equipment, and I couldn't place it in the cold. But then my friend Troy, who was never known for his subtlety, asked the clarifying question, so where are the poles? 
It was a really fine question and one I didn't have a good answer to. In our haste of leaving town, the poles were not in the bag. So here we were, three of us in the dark, in the snow, with a nice tent, a lot of cold weather ahead, wetness now setting in with no poles for a tent. It was an overall failure to calculate what we needed and to prepare for what we needed to complete our goal. And this is what Jesus warns us about in Luke chapter 14, is that there needs to be some precise calculation of what we will need in order to arrive at our destination. That we want to make that calculation before we start. And Jesus warns us not to make that same mistake. Listen to His words again. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And so in following Jesus, we have to learn to count the cost. Before we start, we want to know what's involved. We don't want to come up short. Jesus wants to make it clear. He doesn't try to trip you up with the fine print that you somehow see many years later on. And so Jesus is going to front load this for us. He's going to put all the conditions and terms up early that we understand what we're getting into when we are following after Him. But why is that? Why does Jesus want to front load it? Why does He want us to understand the terms of being His disciple? It's one very simple reason. It's because Jesus demands everything from us. That's why He front loads it. He wants to be clear about the terms that He expects everything from His disciples. Look what He says in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Stringent demand that Jesus makes. But then once again in verse 33, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus makes the most stringent of demands, calling us to renounce everything in order to follow after Him. He says, this is what it means to walk in the way, to take up your cross and come after Me. You see, Jesus doesn't care to be one commitment among your many commitments. Jesus says He is the commitment, not a commitment in your life. That to follow after Him means to renounce ourselves, to reorient our lives to Him. And He uses very strong language about hate. He says you must hate your father and your mother. You must hate your children and your brothers and your sisters. People ask, well, what exactly does He mean? Does He mean that we're not allowed to love? No, He's using extreme terminology in order to make the point that our desires have to be properly ordered. That we are to love father and mother relative to Jesus. That they cannot be superior commitments. That He is the superior commitment. That He receives our loyalty and allegiance above everything else. 
You remember last week we saw earlier in the chapter as Jesus sat at a dinner with the Pharisees that he invited, he tells a story of a man who invites people to a great banquet. The invitations were sent out and the people received them and replied yes that they were going to go. But when the day arrived and everything was prepared, the invited guest committed the social indecency. They began to make excuses. One made an excuse that he had just bought a field. One made an excuse that he had just bought oxen. One made an excuse that he had a new bride and couldn't make it. It was these things, things that God doesn't forbid us, things that God actually values as good, but they had become the ultimate stumbling block. That God's good gifts had become distractions and dragged the people away from embracing the kingdom and the great banquet that was being hosted and held on their behalf. And so we're not to love these things more than Jesus. He is the one who's going to teach us how to love father and mother, how to love wife and children, how to love brother and sister, and how even to relate to oneself. This is the stringent demand that Jesus makes. All our commitments are relative to our commitment to Him. Nothing gets to triumph. Said differently, you could look at it this way, is that to love anything rightly, we must love God above all, and all things then in relation to God. This is what Jesus is asking when He says, take up your cross and follow Me. To love Me and then love everything in relation to Me. This is what He desires from us. Several years ago, I met up with one of the guys who went on these snow camping experiences. And uh, one of the traditions with the snow camping was after we were done, we went to that great southern diner called Bojangles. Um, that was the part of the deal. So we didn't go snow camping because we were in our adulthood at this point, but we did meet at Bojangles. And as we were talking, uh, we were discussing each other's spiritual lives and just the different things that had begun to unfold in our lives after seminary. We both had attended and he said to me, he said, well, Chuck, you know, the one thing that I'm really concerned about myself now, as I grow older, as I gain more responsibilities, he said, I fear that my repentance in life and my following after Jesus is very negotiated. And I, he never struck me as someone who had a very negotiated being. He's really a fine Christian, but he was confessing that he has a very negotiated self-renunciation. And it was wonderful because as he shared it, it caused a great deal of personal reflection for me just to say, well, how negotiated is my repentance? How negotiated is my self-renunciation? Do I allow myself to harbor my disordered loves? To not make Jesus the commitment of life? To make Him a very prominent commitment among many of my other commitments? But do I actually allow Him to rule and order all that it, there is to my life? Because what Jesus is saying is that we have to bid farewell to ourselves. That we renounce ourselves. That we turn from ourselves. That we follow after Him. That He is the chief and the ultimate allegiance of life. It's a strong word. And Jesus knew that many would not be able to accept it. But the major question for us this morning is why? 
Why would you sit around and listen to this? And why would you ever agree to it? To get in line behind Jesus as He tells you to take up your cross and to bear it. To follow after Him. But this is the reason. He demands everything from us because He gives everything to us. This is why Jesus has the right and the prerogative to say that He can be our ultimate allegiance and that we are to follow after Him. The context, once again, is all important in Luke chapter 14 where He tells the parable. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Jesus has just had one of the participants in the dinner say, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He tells the story of a banquet and every good Jewish boy and girl at the table understood what Jesus was referencing. Whenever language of the banquet and the kingdom of God came up, this was a direct reference to Isaiah 25. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles there. Tremendously important passage in the Old Testament for understanding the new. And in verse 6, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And Jesus was indicating that this great banquet had begun. That this was now unfolding. That God's great plan, His purpose to remove death from the world and the scourge of sin was now unfolding in Jesus. This was the provocative part of His message and many underestimated Him and didn't understand how He was going to be the one who was bearing this kingdom. But this is why Jesus says He can demand everything from us. Because He gives everything to us. He gives everything and beyond that we can imagine. The Apostle Paul tells us that we can never imagine in our greatest thoughts, in our loftiest ideals, what the great new creation will look like and what it will consume. What it will be like on God's earth when He once again dwells with His people. Jesus is saying this is what's unfolding. And when He calls us to bear a cross and to follow after Him, it's really not a stringent thing at all. When we see that He gives us everything, what He demands feels very light. And so what we experience as burdensome is oftentimes just a failure to understand what Jesus actually offers. And that friends, this Jesus who calls us to take up a cross, who bestows a cross on us, only asks us to do so because He bears a cross for us. And we must understand and get our minds around and our hearts understanding that as He bears that cross for us, it brings to life God's new world where death will be no more. Where sin is destroyed. Where our iniquities are taken away. That is what God holds out for us. And that's why He commands us to follow Him. 
Ten years ago, I had the opportunity to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. You've heard various stories from that account, but I've never told you about Nicholas. Nicholas was our Tanzanian tour guide who led us up the mountain. They don't simply let you just start hiking uh, on Kilimanjaro. You have to be led by porters and a guide. Nicholas had one rule for us as we marched behind him for some 50, 60 miles. He demanded that we follow him. He would explain, you need to stay in line. You need to stay at my pace. There were three reasons that Nicholas demanded that we follow him. The first was that he wanted us to walk slowly. You see, if you climb an altitude too quickly, you will get altitude sickness. It doesn't matter what kind of shape you are in. Altitude sickness is the leveler of the playing field when it comes to climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And so he would constantly say, pole, pole, slowly, slowly. And so our hikes oftentimes felt like a just kind of afternoon sauntering up the side of the mountain, walking very slowly. And if you attempted to pass him, he would say, nope, follow me. Trust me. The second reason that he asked us to follow him is that he wanted us to stay in line to remain safe. There were cliffs. There were animals. There were different things on the mountain. And so he wanted you to remain in line because he could guarantee your safety. The third thing, though, is that he wanted you to trust him that he would deliver you to the peak. And this was probably the most difficult part when Nicholas said, follow me. Because on day three, we had climbed from 7,000 feet to 15,000 feet. There was a lot of climbing those first three days. And we could actually see the trail that led to the top. It was the trail up the backside of the mountain. And he said, well, we could summit just there and be there by nightfall. And it sounded pretty reasonable and good to most of us. He said, but rather what we're going to do is we're going that way. And he showed nearly what looked like a cliff and a small trail leading down. He said, actually, we will descend all the way to 10,000 feet where we will sleep tonight. And, you know, after several restless nights of sleep and bad food and sleeping on the ground, um, I was thinking, let's go ahead and get this over with. <laughs> you know, why don't, why don't we just go ahead and, 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 and ascend? Why do we have to go all the way back down? And what Nicholas explained, he says, this will actually allow your bodies to acclimate. And if you go up to 15,000 today, and then you go down to 10,000, and then we work our way back up to 18,000, I can guarantee you that your entire group will make it. If we do it this way, half of you will make it. I want you to trust me. And friends, this is what our Lord Jesus means when he says, come after me, follow me. That oftentimes his way that goes down into death, that leads to resurrection, makes absolutely no sense to us at all. We don't think that that is the way to life by any means. It seems wasteful. It seems to be just inefficient. It doesn't seem to be the right way. Certainly there's a better way of doing things. Certainly if you have a Savior of the whole world, he would be more impressive on the world's terms. And Jesus asks us, though, to renounce ourselves, to take up our cross, and to trust Him. 
that the way of the cross is the way of life for Jesus. And that He will deliver us to the destination. But in taking up the cross, we're not just doing something about our morality. We're actually exercising faith. We're saying, yes, this is the way. We're not gaining or earning anything from God. He gives us that in Christ. But we're demonstrating that we believe that Jesus is the one, that He is the pioneer of the new world. And so in following, we're expressing our faith and our belief and trust. Because Jesus does bestow a cross on His disciples. It looks heavy to many in the world. Jesus goes ahead and front loads it. He wants us to understand the cost. He wants us to count it. But what Jesus knows is that once we're on the inside, that when we get that He has borne a cross for us, and all that that cross has won on our behalf, that this cross that we bear daily becomes light. It even becomes ephemeral. It becomes nothing because of everything we have in Him. And so friends, as Jesus calls you to follow Him, to take up your cross daily, to renounce yourself, to order all of your loves and priorities around Him, don't be burdened. Remember that He invites you to the great banquet where death will be abolished. Where the tears and the sadness of a broken creation will be removed. That this is the one that you are following on the trail. And He asks for you to believe, to trust Him. And so follow hard. Let's pray. Father, we confess that as we hear these words of Jesus to follow, that we doubt, that we are concerned that His way is not right, that it leads to difficulty and hardship for us, and we don't want to renounce ourselves. But Lord, we pray that You would reorder our loves, that You would teach us to love rightly, that Jesus would be the great commitment of our lives, not one among many others. And as You do so, remind us of all that was ours because of Him. And may we then joyfully take up our cross and follow, bearing it for Jesus' sake. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.